everybody. Welcome to the February 2019 Mark Leverage podcast. Lovely to be back with you. Um, last month, January, um, is often a quite a boring month, isn't it? You know, you have all the excitement of Christmas and the new year, and then suddenly you hit January, where basically it's dark, wet, cold, and pretty miserable. However, on a magical note, there is um, a high point, and that's the event and the session convention, which uh, is organised by Joshua Jay and Andy Gladwin, which takes place in January. And and this year I went for the third year in a row. I went and um, and but for the first time this time I went to the Mentalism Day, the event, uh, as well as the session itself. Um, I'm not much of a mentalist, really. I do some mental magic, but uh, it's not a strong suit for me. Uh, but I thought it might be interesting to go, and it was. And I'll be talking a bit more about some of the elements of that in a minute. But um, the session itself was fantastic. Um, one of the strongest ones that I've been to. Uh, the lineup was uh, was very good, and the performances and the lectures were all very strong. Uh, it's funny because, in a way, you're trying to show close up to a room full of five or six hundred people. Not easy. Uh, and to that end, um, Joshua, Jay, and Andy Gladwin have had to think about venues. And this year, they moved venue. The last two years, they've been at a hotel um, at Heathrow Airport. They moved in the same location, still at Heathrow Airport, but they moved to um, a, a different hotel. And I think that move was, was a success. Um, my friends and I who went to the convention, we certainly found the, the convention hotel to be very good. And lots of variety of stuff that you could eat at different prices. Um, and the facilities for the convention seemed to be very good. The main room, which now has to hold five, six, seven hundred people, um, it has got a couple of big kind of pillars in the way. So you, you have, there are some seats you have no point in sitting behind them, sitting there because you'll be behind a pillar. But um, that aside, Bob Hamilton with his um, two-screen video, which I thought was excellent, the clarity of which was very, very good, really helps that almost wherever you sit, you can see stuff, um, which is important because it is essentially a close-up convention. So um, that side of it, the technical side of it, I thought was very good. The sound quality was great, but the stand of the lectures and the performers was very, very good. And uh, I don't envy them having to top it every year. When you do an annual convention and you have one that's particularly strong, you probably think, wow, that's fantastic. And then you think, oh, no, now we've got to do even better next year. I mean, I think the final gala show, which was was nice and compact, it's about an hour and a half perfectly long enough and just two or three acts all of them extremely strong very very good so looking forward to next year already now as i mentioned a moment ago i went to the event and uh, being as uh, i'm not a, a strong mentalist in the sense that i do include some mental items but i'm more of a comedy mentalist i suppose uh, if you had to give me any sort of category at all so it's quite interesting to go along and see different types of mentalism. And I was quite interested to see how there are clearly some mentalists who see mentalism as being a, the, the pure form of magic in inverted commas. And that ordinary magic is something that they askew, that they don't particularly enjoy. And they try to keep a distance themselves, keep away from it as much as possible. But despite this fact, uh, mentalists have to realise, of course, that they are performing in the same venues and often in the same way as um, strolling magicians are. 
And one of the things that I, I hadn't quite appreciated, but which I found quite interesting, was I was listening to a lecture by Luch. Now, Luch's lecture um, was all advice. It was advice about how to do mentalism in a strolling situation. So dinner functions and walkabout, that sort of thing. And his entire lecture had no tricks, which I think for some, some of the registrants, possibly uh, they didn't like because some people are just all they're interested in are the actual tricks. Um, but actually, um, his lecture was full of great advice and he clearly works and he knows the various things that you need to com to combat if you're going to do a successful performance. And there was one thing that he said that I was, uh, that I, as I say, I'd never really sort of thought about before. And that was that um, when mentalists go out to a dinner function, sometimes they're actually competing with what close-up magicians do. In other words, a close-up magician can go up to a table of diners and do something amazing, visual, fast. And when all of the various other things are going on around in the, in the dinner function itself, so waiters and waitresses coming to the tables, causing distractions, meals arriving, other guests coming and suddenly breaking into the group and starting to have a conversation with somebody, um, the disco being too loud, the lighting being low, and all the rest of it. All these things that, that strolling magicians have to cope with, but often have the tools to cope with because the magic can be visual. You don't necessarily have to patter if the music's too loud because magic is often of a nature that people can understand it without you having to add too much verbally. But mentalists, as he pointed out, have it harder because often mental effects are not particularly visual. They rely on what the performer says and often... Um, you know, if you're thinking about wonder words or other sort of plays on words, um, it's all sorts of different ways that mentalists have to get to the end result they need to get to. These are often subtle things, which and the subtlety might well be lost in a dinner situation because the the people, if they can't hear, or if they don't quite understand what's going on, or they pick up the nuance of what's going on, then everything the mentalist does can come fall a little bit flat and I never really sort of appreciate it but it's very true um, if you'd have to pick your material really really carefully I think if you want to do this this type of event because in many ways it's a bit like doing a magic trick where there are two or three minutes of build-up to one magical moment that's a dangerous type of trick to do at tables because of all the potential interruptions and distractions it may well be that if the spectators miss the one magical moment da -da, at the end of the trick then the rest of the time is just a waste of time because the, the all the build-up led to something that they didn't actually see and the mentalist has this problem potentially in spades because um, often mentalism is building up to the revealing of a prediction or whatever and if it's not done in the right way. If there's nothing going on very much during the build-up, then if there is an interruption at an unfortunate moment, the whole effect is lost and everything seems very pointless. And the lack of the visual element, if, if, if a mentalist is trying to be a very pure mentalist and, and using virtually no props, there's nothing visual to see, is a much harder sell under these circumstances. And this is, I think, what is what Luch was saying. It's much harder to sell this 
um, than it is for the strolling magician. You're in competition with what the strolling magicians can do. And so you need to think about your material. I thought it was a really good point uh, and, and one which uh, I, I haven't come across mentalists or at least strolling performers doing just mentalism very often. When I've worked big functions where there's more than one person performing, most of the time all the performers are magicians, although there may occasionally be a mentalist in amongst them. But um, it, I think it's an interesting discussion point and one which I'm sure working mentalists must think about quite a lot. How are they going to keep the attention of the audience with all the distractions going on at these type of functions in order to make sure that what they do is both enjoyed and relevant? About 20 years ago, when I was in my early 40s, um, I was trying to find a different avenue for my close-up magic, a different commercial avenue. And I was doing weddings and private parties and things like that, but I wanted something else. And uh, I was looking at the business market and how I could do magic for businesses. And I'm not just talking about business social functions, but other types of business related events. Because it struck me that I was always seeing publicity in, in my local city for, for various business orientated events. But I, and I don't just, again, don't just mean exhibitions. It could be like office openings or refurbishments or, you know, there were opportunities there. And I, the trouble was I, I couldn't see how I could make myself relevant initially to these types of events. And I decided that really the best way to do it was to get to know the business people. So I joined a couple of business networking groups. And for the last 20 years, I've been going on a regular basis every month to these business luncheons and developing in my local area a lot of friends and contacts in the local business community. And this has led, although it's a, it's a slow burn in some ways, this has led, led to me getting a lot of work for companies and businesses, even quite small businesses sometimes, at trade shows, at all types of um, business, social and business to business events, whether it's product launches or whether it's um, client schmoozing events as well as you know Christmas parties and things like that, anniversary dues and this sort of thing. But the reason that, um, or one of the main reasons I think that I get the work is because over the years, I, because I've been mixing with business people who are, none of whom of course are magicians, they're all just general business people, um, I've gradually got to understand what they're like, how they work, what's important to them, what they're trying to achieve, what their issues and problems might be. And as well as that, also developed personal relationships, business relationships with these people. And this has all proved very beneficial. You see, I think one of the issues that business people might have with employing a magician is that they may feel that the magician, although he may be a very good entertainer, won't understand or have any handle on what it is that they as a business are trying to achieve we can come across as being almost trivial to them. So if they've got something like a business event that is important to them, let's say they're getting some key clients in, they want to relax them, they want to talk to them about business. If they feel they can employ a magician who understands what the overarching um, purpose of the event is, 
They want their staff to be able to talk to their clients. And then they feel that magician will perform magic, relax people, but will get out of the way at the vital moment and not try and be the centre of attention. This sort of thing. Then I think they're more likely to book that magician. Also, if they have had many to, on many occasions conversations with the magician, as they do with me at networking events, if they get to know you as a person, uh, they get to trust you, and they may even see you do some magic so they know you've got the magical expertise as well, then when it comes to an event and they think they might like something different, they're quite frankly, they're unlikely to go elsewhere. They know you already. It's an easy sell for you as as the business magician to get in there and, and to get the work. So I think this idea that um, involving yourself in the in the local business community is something that you don't need. Well, you only don't need it if you don't want to work for local businesses and you're happy to pick up the scraps that may come your way. But if you're prepared to put the effort in, then that will give you openings that you might not otherwise have had. <clears throat> Apart from anything else, I find it absolutely fascinating to... Because, after all, um, as a professional magician, I am running a business and I have issues, cash flow or whatever it might be, all the same issues it's just that mine is all magic orientated but it's still business issues and so do these people so we have something in common because we're all running businesses or we're managers of businesses and so it's a really good way also to get feedback and information about how you can run your own business and over the years I've been a member of, of business help groups the entrepreneur's circle I was a member of for nearly six years uh, and that gave me a huge amount of input about how to run my business effectively, um, how to be good at promoting the business and so on. Ideas that I would never have had had I stayed just within the business community. Sorry, just within the magic community. By getting into the business community, that's exactly what I did get. A view from outside that I could then take into my business and apply the principles. So I think if you, if you want to work with businesses then, and you're prepared to think long term, then join Rotary, join um, business networking groups. So there's bound to be some in your area. Get involved with the local businesses, go to local trade fairs just as a punter initially and talk to people. And gradually you'll get a feel for what they need and then you will be able to decide whether those needs can be helped by you and your magic. If you're the sort of person who's interested in improving the magic that you do or getting more ideas to put into your act, then there's one way to do it that is probably better than all the other ways put together. And that is have a conversation with other magicians. Now, when I say conversation, I don't mean necessarily on the telephone, although that's good. But I'm really talking about more face to face conversation. I think a lot of people, especially young people, perhaps um, maybe they use FaceTime on their phones. Maybe they maybe they exchange video and so on. But a face to face conversation where you're actually sitting across a table with somebody um, gives you so much more flexibility and allows the the thread of thought to shoot off in all sorts of different directions almost at will. The art of conversation is, is something that sometimes I wonder if we're losing. You know, you've only got to see people sitting around a table sometimes, say a family. Uh, and if you've got two teenagers and two adults, chances are all four of them will be sitting there eating a meal on their phones, all absorbed by the screen. 
Um, but conversation, certainly in a magical context, is is fantastic because it can jump, as I say, from one thing to the next almost at will and sometimes take you down paths that you hadn't prepared for, that you hadn't expected and which are really beneficial. Now, these face to face conversations, um, it might be just when you go to the magic club, if you get a chance. A lot of magic clubs don't give a lot of chance for people to chat. They might have a, they have a usually have a break in the middle, have a cup of tea or something. 10 or 15 minutes but it's usually if there's a lecture or something like that that's a very short period of time and at the end of the event at the end of the lecture chances are there'll be a caretaker jangling keys or some people say, come on everybody out you go people end up standing in the car park in the dark trying to have a chat it's not really conducive to to much of a conversation um but the magic clubs is one way a collection of magic friends i've mentioned many times before on the podcast how um myself and three of my closest magical friends we get together at least once a year uh, and have two or three days locked away in a, in a house and, and we and we basically talk magic and perform magic and analyze magic for two or three days and it's brilliant and we often although we will set sometimes one or two questions things for people to think about prior to coming we don't really know where it's all going to go we don't really know what each of us is going to bring to the table in inverted commas to talk about and and it's absolutely fascinating and hugely stimulating the direction that these conversations take, especially when these conversations are <clears throat> with people who know what they're talking about and who've got something to offer. I mean, a conversation that uh, with people who perhaps don't have very much experience or much knowledge. Well, it's not really not going to go very far, perhaps. But conversations with people who have a lot of knowledge, I think, are absolutely fascinating. Now, I mentioned uh, that I went to the Magic Clips event, uh, which took place at the end of last year in November. And that one was very much a day when you had the chance to sit and chat informally. And it was great fun. And it was clear that people of all different abilities were all sitting around and benefiting from the, the two and forth of, of, of the conversations and were able to, to touch on subjects perhaps that they didn't even know they were interested in or to follow up with a question when somebody mentions something to have a question about that and then take the conversation on further. So it may seem obvious, have a conversation, but I do wonder sometimes whether magically where the way that events are are put together and when magicians come together that there isn't a lot of free time and that's where things like the session where if you're staying in the hotel you can stay up until late at night if you want into the early hours of the morning in the hotel chatting with other magicians are hugely stimulating and beneficial and I go to 4Fs the close-up magic convention in America every year same thing there there's lots of time to socialize and to mix with knowledgeable magicians and it's a heck of a buzz so if you're looking to stimulate your magic, then I really would recommend engineer it so that you get some really good conversations with some magicians who know what they're talking about. I've always been fascinated by the process of creating new magic material. Uh, I've done it all my working life and uh, and I really enjoy the, the progression of of an idea from its initial conception through to sometimes in my case a marketed product that others can use and so how you actually start the, the creative process is something I've thought about quite a lot and in fact a few years ago and it's still available uh, I published the book A Simple Guide to Creativity in which I tried to demystify the process of creating or adapting magic 
and take away all the all the difficult concepts and replace that with practical steps that uh, you can use to to try and be a bit creative yourself and at the moment um, I'm reading a book called Creating the Impossible which is by Chris Wardle and James Ward with a view to re doing a v review for Magic Scene and and in the at the beginning of that book there's quite an interesting sort of um, conversation in inverted commas between the two of them about which is it best to start the creative process with? Is it better to start with an effect or is it better to start with a method? And I mean, I both have validity, but um, I wonder if there is one better than the other. And they discuss this backwards and forwards. Uh, and I'm not sure that they, that they think there is a better one, but it's an interesting intellectual exercise, I think, to consider it for a few moments. Um, I think for me, most of the time these days, I start with an effect. I, I, I kind of do a, a what if. Uh, what if I could make this turn into this? Or if I could get that to happen, how would I do it? So I start with the effect and then I start trawling through my mind and think about the various methods that I know, see if there's anything that will fit in order to create the, the trick that I want to create. And I start to admit that, and sometimes I can quite quickly come to a good solution because I have a lot of options in my head that I can use to come up with a method that works. And obviously, with experience, you you can short track a lot of the, um, the all the necessary bits in order to get to a solution quickly. But there are occasions, of course, when you're, for instance, shown a move, and I've done this in the past as well. You're shown a move, so effectively, it's a method. But there's no trick. It's just a move. It might be a card move, a coin move, whatever it is. And you think, oh, well, that's a good move. What could I do with that? So then starting with the, with the method, if you like, you think, right, what effect, what object can I use and what effect would that create? And you can then start to work towards an effect. Now, now I did this with, with one of my marketed routines. Um, uh, the borrowed ring on pencil started in this way. I had a, a move for getting a ring onto a pencil. But I didn't have a, apart from that move, an actual way of doing it, I didn't have a trick. And so starting with that move, I, I worked outwards and created a three-stage routine. Now with this, I did basically start with the method, although I needed actually a couple of other methods because I had three different moves. But nevertheless, it was the thing that started me on the process in the first place. But generally speaking, um, I do tend to start with the effects. I think the problem with starting with a move or a method is that there is the danger that you won't think outside the box enough. Because you've started with the method and the method is important or the move is important, all you do is concentrate on the method and the move. And you're not thinking about too much about what would happen if you didn't use that move but used another move I mean it's, it doesn't mean you have to work like that but there's a danger that you might because that's why you start on the whole thing in the first place whereas with an effect where you say I'd like to be able to make this happen because you're not locked into any particular method sometimes you get to a method that requires the effect to be changed and you will do that because you can't achieve the original effect that you had in your, your sort of fantasy effect. You actually can't create it. It's impossible. So you don't have a method you can use. So therefore you have to change the effect. So for me, 
I may be wrong about this, but I feel like the starting with the effect it gives you slightly more open-ended versatility. But of course, it's just the way your mind works, isn't it? Um, starting with methods or moves in particular can be very fruitful. And uh, people like Jay Sankey are masters at this. They'll they'll get a move or a, or a particular idea, and then they're working from that. He will create twenty five different uses for it. And he's so creative and so is able to think at tangents so well that he will shoot out uh, into all different directions, starting from the basic premise of the method. So it just goes to show if your mind works in the right way, you can do it. But uh, why don't you think about that for yourself? I mean, what do you do? If you were going to start with creating something new, would you start with the effect or would you start with the method? Now, I mentioned at the start of this podcast how um, much I'd enjoyed the session. And one of the reasons was the appearance on the session this year of Mac King. Now, I've seen parts of Mac's act before, not live. I've seen it uh, on the Internet. Um, But it was really nice to see him working live. And he really is an excellent live performer. And one of the things that... um, that certainly I noticed and others noticed about him is that despite the fact that the material that he's using, he's been doing it for years and years and years. And he does so many shows every year in his residency in Las Vegas that he has to repeat these tricks ad infinitum. And there is always a danger, of course, when you do that, that you become very jaded, that you you almost go into autopilot. And yet his presentational style is such that you, you, you don't feel that with him. You you really feel that he is being quite spontaneous, off the cuff, that it's the first time he's ever done this trick for anybody, that he finds it as funny as the rest of the audience do. And it's a real skill to be able to do that. And it was interesting that in his lecture, he asked for questions and, and somebody asked him that. How on earth do you maintain your spontaneity? And his answer was... It's the hardest thing that he has to do. It's interesting because he said, I actually have to work on this. I have to think consciously about how I'm performing things in order to make sure that it does come across fresh. And I thought, well, that is the ultimate professional attitude. Here's a guy who could quite easily go through the motions. You know, he's got a contract, no doubt, lasting off into the distance. Um, you know, and he's in in a comfort zone. So you would imagine that it would be all too easy just to go, do you know what, I'm just going to, today, I think I'm just going to coast. But clearly he's trying to proof himself against this by not doing that, Um, by being aware that that's something that might happen and by actively trying to appear, at least on the face of it anyway, to be fresh every time he performs. And I really take my hat off to him for that, because even as a as a strolling magician, when you, you go and you do an evening and you perhaps, let's say, you perform the same trick, let's say, a dozen or 15 times. By the time you get to that 15th performance of the same trick, you can feel yourself either speeding up and not bothering or just getting a bit bored with it all. Well, imagine doing the same tricks hundreds of times every year. Uh, wow. I mean, I really do have respect for anybody who can cope with that mentally, uh, just cope with it, never mind how you present it. So I thought it was excellent that he'd obviously thought about this, that he knew it could be an issue. 
And I, I can remember um, a couple of years ago, I was talking to somebody uh, in the States about another very well-known um, performer who works a lot of shows. And they'd been to see a show. And I said, oh, how was it? And he said, oh, it was excellent. I mean, it's, you know, excellent magic and all the rest of it. Although the performer himself, he felt, looked tired and looked as if he didn't really care too much. And you thought, hmm, well, all right, maybe as magicians we would notice this. Maybe the lay public don't notice. I don't know. But clearly this particular person was struggling to keep that spontaneity alive in a way that Matt King doesn't appear to be. So well done, Matt King. And um, I don't know whether it's something he can keep going forever, but he's certainly been keeping it going for many years already. So I don't see any, any reason why not. Uh, and it's a lesson to all of us that uh, even the top pros uh, can think in sometimes about the small minutiae, the detail, because they know that it makes the difference. Right, well, that's uh, the end of the February podcast. Now, um, I've had a, I have had a cold for the last week and, and a cough, a tickly cough. Hence why I'm, I'm a, being a bit nasally, I'm afraid, on this podcast. I hope it hasn't been too irritating for you. I've done my best. And uh, hopefully by the time I come to make the uh, the March podcast, I will be completely cold free and won't be trying to talk to you through a blocked up nose. Have a good month and I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye, everybody. <laughs>